Welcome to the Healing Pain Podcast with Dr. Joe Tata. Each week, we interview top experts in physical therapy, pain science, and integrative pain care. You'll learn the most up-to-date information for treating and reversing persistent pain. This podcast is for educational purposes only and not intended to be used as personalized medical advice. And now, here's your host, Dr. Joe Tata. Hey there, friend. Thanks for joining me for this week's episode of the Healing Pain Podcast. If you've been following along with each episode, you know that we often speak about the psychosocial variables that are effective for the management of chronic pain. Why do we spend so much time in this? Because study after study confirms that psychological interventions alone, or more importantly, combined with interventions such as physical therapy, are effective for the management of chronic pain. Theories and methods such as cognitive behavioral therapy, acceptance and commitment therapy, mindfulness-based stress reduction, mindfulness, explained pain, and pain neuroscience education all have supporting evidence and are a part of a comprehensive program for the management of chronic pain. But with so many treatments to choose from, a wise clinician may ask which one works best. Or perhaps a better research question are which components that are embedded in these methods are most effective for the management of chronic pain. Until recently, there's been little research to answer these questions or guidance to help a clinician choose the most important components as they're creating a plan of care for people living with pain. Joining me today to discuss the necessary components of psychological treatment in pain management is Professor Louise Sharp. Professor Sharp is an expert in health psychology with a particular expertise in cognitive behavioral treatments for patients coping with chronic pain and physical illness. She's particularly interested in the way in which people adjust to illness and the interventions that prevent the development of psychological problems and increase physical disability. On today's episode, you'll learn all about the efficacy of cognitive behavioral treatments for the management of chronic pain, the three essential components that should be a part of every cognitive behavioral approach, and if we should shift our approach away from focusing on components and more toward process-based therapy. Okay, there's a lot to unpack here in today's episode with regard to which components are necessary for the treatment of chronic pain. So let's begin and let's meet Professor Louise Sharp. Hi there, Louise. Thanks for joining me this week for the Healing Pain Podcast. It's great to have you here. Well, it's great to be here, Joe. Thanks for asking me. I know you're on a quarantine like we are here in New York, so I'm glad we can connect during this time. You're in Australia and I'm in New York, and sometimes the time difference is a little bit challenging, but I'm glad we can have this time to, to connect. I came across a paper that you wrote called Necessary Components of Psychological Treatment in Pain Management Programs, a Delphi study. And it really caught my eye. It's a very detailed and very thorough and interesting study. And I wanted to make sure that, of course, people can access the paper, but then, you know, talk to you directly about the paper. Let's begin here, just for people who may not know. Can you tell us first what your aim for the paper was? And then two, most importantly, maybe tell people what a Delphi study is so they understand what that really means in the context of the paper. Well, so one of the things that we aimed to do with this paper, well, I guess the problem that we aimed to address is that we've known for a long time now over a number of Cochrane reviews, which are generally thought to be the highest possible evidence for a treatment, uh, that psychological treatments are effective for people with chronic pain. And I want to make it really clear that that doesn't mean that chronic pain is a psychological problem. It's not. But just like we provide psychological treatments to people with cancer or multiple sclerosis, we also know that trying to help people learn ways to better manage a chronic physical condition like chronic pain can actually improve their ability and reduce their disability, which is the primary goal of these programs. 
But the difficulty is that over many reviews, there are over 90 randomized controlled trials, for example, of cognitive behavior therapy, which is the most commonly used intervention. What we found is that the reporting of these trials gets better so people are better at reporting exactly what they did so that we know whether it's a good quality trial or not, but actually the quality of the therapy has been said not to improve. And the difficulty, I think, is that psychological treatment or even cognitive behavioural therapy, which is a particular sort of psychological treatment that focuses on people's beliefs and their behaviours, is a very large umbrella term. And so there are lots of different things that might look completely different but still be called a psychological treatment or a cognitive behavioural treatment. And so it's very difficult in trials to know if one's trying to move on from saying, well, are these treatments effective to say, you know, what's the most effective treatment or what are the most effective components? You can't go through and compare all the different variations because there isn't enough funding to do that. So one way to do that is to try and get a consensus opinion about from the leading researchers and clinicians what a good, solid psychological treatment for chronic pain would involve. What are the core treatments that are necessary in order for that to be a sort of gold standard pain management type approach? And so that was what we set out to do. So when you ask what is a Delphi study, a Delphi study is a study that actually goes to a group of experts and gets them to try and reach a consensus by agreeing that by more than 70% of people agreeing that a particular, in this case, component of treatment would be necessary if you were to provide what would be a reasonable standard of treatment for patients with chronic pain. And the way you identified someone as being an expert was when I read your study, it was the fact that they have already conducted a randomized control trial on psychological interventions for the treatment of pain. Some were, many, most were psychologists, but not all. Is that correct? That's right. So the fact that they were psychologists, we think it, we expected because we were interested in psychological treatments. And there had already been a Delphi study about what sorts of professionals and professional skills are necessary to manage pain generally. So we were trying to narrow in on the psychologists. So that wasn't surprising to us. But the reason that we did that is that a lot of Delphi studies actually go to people who are known to the authors and they use a process called snowballing, which is I call a colleague of mine who does work in pain management and say, can you suggest other people? And the difficulty with that way is that because I tend to collaborate with people who have very similar views to me, and they tend to collaborate with people that have very similar views to them, then it becomes a little bit like adding bias into that process when you use snowballing, because you're potentially just getting people whose work is very similar to your own and amplifying your own view. So we wanted to take a more robust approach to it. And so what we did is we used people who had been the lead authors of randomised controlled trials on the basis that we assumed that they had both an excellent expertise in reading the evidence because they are researchers, but also because these are randomised controlled trials, these people are typically also clinicians. So those were the group used in the first round. In the second round, we supplemented that as well with a group of clinicians. And again, we wanted to ensure that we didn't just get like-minded clinicians. So we wanted to get a finite group of people where we could go to a group of people that were representative. So we actually wrote to every pain management program in Australia and asked for them to have somebody to complete this. Um, and we ended up with 44 experts in our second round. And of course, there are clinicians in there as well, which I think is really important to have researchers 
and clinicians as, as that expert pool, which is great. Did you reach outside of Australia at all? So all the randomized control trials for, for the researchers, we were international. And the reason that we went only to Australia for the clinicians is that it was the only way we were able to identify that we were going to get a representative sample that we were going to ask. But actually, their views were not very different at all from the researchers. The main difference was that they thought that more things should, were necessary <laughs> if you looked at them separately. And I suspect that's because we chose them from people who worked actually in large multidisciplinary programs. And of course, you have a large multidisciplinary program, then it's very easy to include, you know, five or six or seven or eight intervention strategies because these programs are typically run sort of over a three-week period, five days a week. Whereas we wanted also to be able to say for clinicians who, for example, in Australia have a limited number of sessions that they can do with patients, if you only have 10 sessions, what are the key necessary components that a group of experts would suggest you should be using at this point? As your paper reads in the first round, you identified 49 different treatment components, which may sound like a lot to some people, but those of us who work in chronic pain are well aware that people often come to us with lists of interventions they've tried. Can you identify or explain to us what or define what a component is for people so they understand what that means? Sure. So a component of intervention, how we identified the components firstly was we actually went to every randomized control trial that was conducted, I think from memory, between 2006 and 2016. And we just took out everything that people had listed as a particular component in their randomized control trials during that period. So these could be things like relaxation training, which would be a component of a treatment that can be delivered alone where you just teach somebody to do the relaxation training. It could be mindfulness meditation, which again is a component which might aim to achieve some of the same things as, re as relaxation training, but actually has quite a different philosophy. So to some degree, components have to be a little bit arbitrary because people might talk about, say, cognitive challenging, which would be another component of a cognitive behavioral treatment, or they might talk about teaching cognitive coping skills. And those would be a little bit different in the way that they're framed, but might have some overlapping features. And what we were trying to do in that very first round is to be completely exhaustive of all the things that people said that they did during these programs and to see what the experts then thought of, of those strategies and whether there were ways that we could better amalgamate them or label them in a way that would be more helpful for the final round. Yeah, it's an interesting list to read through, that's for sure, as, as a clinician to see all the different components that they're using in their care of pain. There were some that we weren't quite sure what they referred to and neither were some of the experts according to their responses. Yeah. So to me, it's one of the reasons why it's kind of important to do this work because there are people doing these strategies which people are not entirely sure what they're doing and there certainly isn't in my reading of the literature very much evidence for them. And I think patients with chronic pain are very much at risk for people potentially doing substandard treatments that are not evidence-based because they're often very vulnerable and have tried so many things that when you get a good salesman for something that sounds different to what you've tried before, it can create a lot of hope in patients where they really want to pursue that intervention. But ultimately, if it's not affected, the patients are the ones that end up very disappointed. And that just compounds their bad experience of treatments through the services. That, as, a, as a clinician, that is 100% what I really appreciated about this paper. Because I approach pain from an integrated perspective, like many professionals do. 
And we have this firestorm that has grown around the biopsychosocial model. However, your work in this paper is clarifying underneath that biopsychosocial model. Let's look at all those components and let's identify what really works or what's beneficial, what's been proven, what shows supportive evidence for it. Within those 49 individual components, you then group them down into seven different approaches. Uh-huh. Can you talk a little bit about those seven approaches? I have them listed out here because I, I wrote them down because I think they're important for everyone to you know, reflect upon. Sure. Well, what we tried to do as a team, so the team included myself, Michael Nicholas, who's a, a leading professor in clinical psychology of pain management, Claire Ashton-James, who is also a psychology uh, trained person, Emma Jones, who's one of my PhD students, and Catherine Rafshorgi, who's one of Australia's leading physiotherapists involved in pain management and, and the teaching of pain. And so we sat down as a team and tried to identify what, what these sort of, I guess, components had in common to look at general approaches. So as I said before, people would say cognitive challenging, they might say cognitive coping skills, they might say things like attention diversion, which would be an example of a cognitive coping skill. And I guess we thought of all of those as being sort of cognitive approaches where what you're trying to do is change the way in which people are thinking. Similarly, in recent years, in particular over the last, I suppose, decade or so, there's been an increase in approaches such as mindfulness or acceptance commitment therapy that are often called the third wave therapies of CBT. So in essence, I guess they belong to the cognitive behavioral therapy family, but they have a slightly different approach and the approach differs largely because ACT and mindfulness are very much more focused on the process of how people approach their thoughts and experiences rather than the content. So in the cognitive approaches, typically what we'd be trying to do is get people to change their beliefs. So if people believed, for example, that pain was likely to harm them, we would actually try to challenge that in some way by developing behavioral experiments for them or by presenting evidence and working through the evidence with person with chronic pain. However, if you were doing ACT, for example, you would get them to think that's just a thought, it may or may not be true, and you would want them to kind of not respond to it. And mindfulness has a similar sort of approach. So we grouped those into sort of similar things, or like, for example, increasing activity. So people actually in in the results found that that was a very important one, that, you know, we need to get people actually doing things. So we tried to do that so that we could actually put together a group of interventions that have a similar aim to then see which of the broad categories of interventions or approaches did people think were necessary? And then within that, were there particular strategies that were important? Or was it the case that it didn't matter which strategy within that approach you used as long as you did something within that approach? Beautifully said. So so everyone knows those 49 individual treatment components grouped into seven approaches were exercise-related approaches, psychoeducation, social, cognitive, pain education, mindfulness or ACT, as she mentioned earlier, and then there was a seven group, which was other. So I think those, even those seven right there, I think are very helpful for people when they look at, for example, a multidisciplinary pain program that so many of us have worked in. Or So I recommend, of course, everyone read the paper, Necessary Components of Psychological Treatment in the Management of Pain. There's a lot of great information here. We've spoken about some of it already on this episode, but of course, read it. But Louise, what does this all kind of boil down to? At the end of the day, what does the data from your study tell us? The data from the study says that if you're going to see somebody with chronic pain, there are three things that you really need to do. 
Firstly, you need to provide them with some education, uh, particularly education about pain and the role of thoughts and, and behaviours in the experience of chronic pain. Secondly, you need to do some cognitive work. So you need to actually work with them to try and change some of their beliefs around pain. And the experts didn't seem to think it mattered what strategies you used in order to achieve that as long as you actually targeted that. And you need to get people moving. So you need to increase their activity. Uh, so strategies like goal setting and pacing come under those areas. And those are important to make sure that people start to actually be able to do things. And it's likely that those three things are important because they go together. Because if you don't educate people about pain, then they're going to be very reluctant to do things because they worry that the pain is a sign that they have been harmed in some way or that their body is damaged. And once they understand that chronic pain is actually neurally mediated and that the pain is because those nerves are sending signals for damage which is no longer there, that allows them to start to actually engage in activity. And as they engage in activity in whatever way they do that through the prescription of exercises, through physiotherapy or through goal setting or values clarification type work through acceptance and commitment therapy, they start as well to challenge their beliefs. And then we need to bring some cognitive strategies that help them to do that more so, so that we really try and make those strategies work together. And those were the three components that the experts felt were core and necessary to providing an appropriate and evidence-based psychological treatment approach for patients with chronic pain. Excellent. So to provide some education, help yep. people to move activity, and then help them with their thoughts and how their thoughts yep. relate to their actions or their behaviors with regard to exactly. pain. It doesn't really, from what you found from your study, it doesn't really matter whether, for example, pain education is done, let's say, through explained pain or it's done through traditional, more psychoeducation. And the cogn right. cognitive aspect doesn't matter whether it's traditional cognitive behavioral therapy, ACT, or mindfulness-based stress reduction, let's say. Well, actually, the, so the experts did suggest that it was important to challenge the content of the beliefs which would suggest more cognitive behavioural approaches. Oh, that's really interesting. Yes, but it's fair to say that one of the limitations is that because this study took a while, while to do and we identified all these going back to 2016, it is true that those are more recent approaches and it may be with subsequent research, those results would change. But I think one of the things that's really important, you know, in a sense, act and mindfulness of the new kids on the block. And it's certainly true that now there is evidence to support their use, but there is still more evidence to support the use of traditional cognitive behavior therapy. And what we need are really well-conducted trials that look at who benefits most from one or the other, because it's very likely that there will be different approaches that will be more effective for one person or another. And so, for example, in the area of chronic pain, there is one study that looked at that, which is a, an old study now by Zoutra in 2008, where they compared mindfulness and cognitive behaviour therapy. On a range of different outcomes, cognitive behaviour therapy was better than mindfulness, and that was a significant effect on a number of outcomes. However, there was a subgroup of patients for whom mindfulness outperformed CBT. And that subgroup of patients were people who had a history of recurrent depression. 
And that's a really important finding because that's what we find actually in the psychiatric literature as well, that mindfulness has a particular role in preventing relapse from people who have a recurrent history of depression. So I expect in the next 10 years, Joe, if you want to ask me back, that I'll be able to tell you that there are certain patients for whom mindfulness is better than CBT and vice versa. But at the moment, what we need need to know is what is, I think, the strongest evidence base and Aside from trying to do the trials that compare things head to head, for which there are a range of difficulties that are discussed in the paper, an expert consensus is at least one way to get some information about that. Thank you for that clarification. I think that's really helpful. And it also starts to maybe point us in the direction that some people do better with cognitive restructuring, some people do better with cognitive diffusion. But as a, yep. pra- as a practitioner, you may need both sets of skills. Yes, that's definitely true. I think what we would say on the basis of this study is that the experts did think that ACT and mindfulness, so diffusion, as you talked about, is a component, if you like, of of ACT, are effective. The experts agreed that. That's certainly my reading of the evidence. But they felt that they weren't necessary at this point. So I think, so they thought they were desirable. So what I would say is that this is really good news for pain patients, because what it's saying is that the experts at this point in time think that the three things that we discussed before, cognitive approaches, increasing activity, and psychoeducation are the core key psychological treatments. If people have additional time, there are lots of desirable things of which cognitive diffusion, for example, would be one. And certainly which where patients aren't benefiting or have failed to benefit in the past from those sorts of approaches, cognitive approaches, for example, then yes, ACT and mindfulness are, are very appropriate alternatives for which there is now a developing evidence. Lifestyle did come up in your paper somewhere in, in the writing. It kind of faded away, I noticed, a little bit. And I'm just wondering if maybe it wasn't looked into as good as it could have been, or is lifestyle just wrapped up, let's say, in a 14-week cognitive behavioral therapy approach to pain, where a longer cognitive behavioral therapy in a multidisciplinary setting may have, let's say, a dietitian working there, may have someone who focuses on sleep. So if we look at the trials that have the largest effect size, there's no doubt that you're right, that those sorts of multidisciplinary teams that work with dietitians, OTs, physiotherapists, clinical psychologists, anaesthetists, etc., provide the largest gains in the shortest possible amount of time. And they do spend a lot of time, like it's an extremely intensive program, but they get very good results. The difficulty is that certainly in Australia, we know that the very small minority of all chronic pain patients get access to that gold standard of treatment. And the difficulty is, so, you know, in Australia, in any case, we are limited to having 10 sessions with a patient a year in private practice. And I'm sure under your insurance companies, you have limitations as well. And so the difficulty is that the experts really just felt that we shouldn't be prioritizing diet advice in the treatment of chronic pain, etc., because that's not core to the psychological management. And I guess the other thing that's really important to say is, you know, we often assume if you have 10 sessions, then, you know, you could do lots of things because you've got 10 sessions. And certainly one of the randomized controlled trials that I completed that was published in 2012, where we tried to dismantle CBT and we looked at cognitive components and behavioral components plus the combined. And there was actually no evidence that the combined group was better overall than either of the other two in any analysis. So we had seven outcomes. In fact, it was the cognitive approaches, three of the seven outcomes that were superior to one or other of the the alternative treatments. 
So I guess from that, one of the things we do know is that simply doing more things doesn't bring about more change necessarily. Sometimes it's better to do the core things really well in order to facilitate change. There has been some feedback about your study with regard to components. So we talked about components which I, of course, enjoyed reading about. I mentioned that already. There is a trend toward what's called process-based therapy. So looking Mm -hmm. at the processes. And Lance McCracken, who is a psychologist and a pain researcher, made some comments about your paper. Can you first explain to us the difference between components versus processes? Because he recommended we should spend a little bit less time on components as we move forward and more time on process. Yeah. So look, I mean, I think a lot of the comments that Lance made are really useful ones. So, I mean, it's certainly true, for example, that so Lance comes from his practice base is largely ACT. So he's an acceptance commitment therapy practitioner, largely in his orientation. And in the groups that he ran at St. Thomas's, they very much took on an ACT approach. And I think he's right. When you have a patient in front of you, you should be looking at what are the processes, what are the core features for that patient of how they come to be as disabled by their pain as they are, and what processes that you might be able to change in order to ameliorate that the best that you can. The difficulty, I guess, is a fewfold. One is that that's very difficult then to communicate what area those processes should be in. So he's right about the components. And to some degree, actually, that was our results for cognitive approaches, right? Was that people were like, it doesn't matter how you get there as long as you get cognitive processes to shift. So I think actually some of our results are consistent with what he's saying. And it's definitely true that we need individual tailoring for interventions when we work with individual people. But I also think that we need to know what are the general approaches that we should be doing. And I think we should be questioning our own practice if we're not doing what 80% of people in, in our study were suggesting were the right things to be doing. If we're routinely doing something different, then I think that's a good time for us to be reflecting on why we're doing that. It may be that we're ahead of the curve. It may be that we're doing something that's even better, but that also may not be the case. And so I think processes are important. And I think partly what we're talking about, there are different words. So I would say our approaches, you could have said, you could have called processes. He's right about the specific components that it probably in many cases doesn't matter what the specific component is and it may be about doing the component that works uh, for the patient. But I would say, for example, that pain education is a component that we should all be doing with our patients. So, I, you know, I think that to some degree what he's saying is correct. And I would also say that actually I think my experience of having worked and run, you know, multidisciplinary chronic pain programs is that actually groups for this intervention are extraordinarily effective and I think there are a lot of other components of of the group that increase the efficacy of the strategies that you're using. But you certainly need to know what components that you're doing in that group. Um, And it's pretty difficult in a group of 10 or 12 patients to actually be individually tailoring what you do in that group. You can tailor the strategies for sure, but I'm not sure you can tailor the content of, of the program each time you get a new group of 10 people. That's interesting. And even you start to move into groups and explore groups, things like peer-led groups are starting to pop up. And that leads a whole new dynamic to groups that might be difficult to tailor as well. Yes, I'm sure. Who do you feel like this work should, who should really pay attention to this work? I have a couple of people in mind. As, as I read your research, I'm like, wow, this really could be useful for a certain group. I'm curious to hear what, what you say before I share my, my thoughts and opinion. 
Okay, so I think there are some key groups that that could. Firstly, I think for researchers. So one of the things that we do find sometimes, so, you know, I pick up a randomised control trial of cognitive behaviour therapy and I read what they've done and I'm not surprised that they didn't get very strong effects because they clearly did not do the things that I would have chosen to have done. <laughs> so I think researchers who are wanting to investigate the efficacy of CBT in whatever way or pain management generally really need to, to look at this and say, well, okay, if I want to see if my new kid on the block is better than you know what's around now, these are the minimal things that I should be including. So I think that's important for researchers. I think for people running multidisciplinary programs and clinical psychologists working in those settings, that these are the core things that they need to make sure that they do have in the program, even if they have other things as well. And I think for the non-specialist, it's really important. So one of the things that I find difficult in Australia, and I think probably is a problem in the States as well, is that in Australia, most psychological therapy actually happens in the private practice office with a person who has not had very much specific training in pain at all and a patient will come through the door and they don't really know how to tailor their approach to pain and they might concentrate on trying to work with the depression somebody has because they have pain or the anxiety that they have about their pain. But actually, there is a specific way of doing psychological treatment with people with pain that has evidence for it and it is not treating the depression solely. And so I think for that group of people, this is a very helpful paper. Excellent. And I, I would agree. I think when you mentioned the people who are non-specialists, and as I'm reading your paper, I was actually thinking students. So we have therapists yeah. graduating, psychologists, physical therapists, OTs, who are graduating with eight years plus of education, and their brains are full of all these yeah. different treatment strategies, interventions, and your paper just boils it down to, hey, here are the three components that are really important, whether you work this into a single treatment session or whether it's spread out over 12 visits, here's what to focus on that's, that's proven to help people. Yeah. yeah. So I really appreciate that. It's been great chatting with you. I love this research paper. I, of course, I'm going to share it in this podcast and I'll share it on social media so people can read all the information. If people want to follow your work and learn more information about you, where can they find you? So I work at the University of Sydney and I have a webpage there. If you type in Louise Sharp and Sydney, you'll uh, come to that and see my publications. I'm also on Twitter and I'm L Sharp UCID, um, underscore UCID. And so really happy to meet people on Twitter and talk more about this important area because I think chronic pain is an area that is often neglected. And yet we know that one in five people experience chronic pain. Well said. I want to thank Louise for joining us this week on the Healing Pain Podcast to discuss the necessary components of psychological treatment and pain management. Make sure you check out the paper. And of course, make sure to share this episode with your friends and family on all your favorite social media outlets. I'm Dr. Joe Chad. It's been a pleasure and I'll see you next week. Thanks so much for your time. It's been a pleasure, Joe. for listening to the Healing Pain Podcast with Dr. Joe Tata. To subscribe to the podcast and learn more, visit integrativepainscienceinstitute.com. That's integrativepainscienceinstitute.com. Sign up to receive weekly updates, leave a review on iTunes, and share this episode with your friends.